Hello and welcome to Sunday Night Conversations brought to you by D1Baseball.com. I am your host, Michael Patrick Rooney. Happy Sunday evening. As we get started, I want to say a special thank you to our presenting sponsor, Netting Pros. Netting Pros specializes in the design, fabrication, <laughs> or fabrication, and installation of custom netting and padding for college baseball programs all around the country. Next time your field or facility needs something new, whether that's netting, wall padding, L screens, ball carts, make sure you check out our friends at Netting Pros. These guys are awesome. They love the sport. Again, it's it's always great when you know you can get your hands on the best there is in that space and, and you're supporting a business that really cares uh, about our sport. So I want to say thanks again to, the, to our friends at Netting Pros. So gentlemen, good evening. Happy Sunday. We've got five of you tonight. So this pitching development talk, I want to get into it as quickly as I can. For the uninitiated, this is kind of generate the second generation of what we did last year called fourth coach conversations. This year, we've just been kind of topic driven. We've been subject specific. Tonight's talk is going to be pitcher development. And, and we've really focused on guys that are assistant coaches in our game. The head coaches get a lot of media attention. They tend to be the the, the mouthpiece of their programs, and that's the way it should be. But this has been a really fun way to to chop it up and, and get it after some subject areas in our sport with some assistant coaches. So, boys, let's let's go around the horn. Coach Harmon, I'm going to go with you. So here's what I want you guys to do. Give me your name, where you are, where you're from, and just kind of bullet point your resume for me, where you grew up, where you played, where you've coached. Uh, you don't have to get into extensive parts of the stops, but name, where you're at, and, and where you've been. Coach Harmon, kick us off. Yep. Brandon Arman, associate head coach, Gonzaga University, going into my 11th year. And I'm one of the rare coaches in the, this game that I, I played at Gonzaga. And I'm, I'm from Spokane, Washington, where we're at. So I'm, I'm Spokane and Gonzaga through and through. So, so Coach Harmon, like literally, it's, it's once you left. So did you go Gonzaga prep? No, I, I, Coach Mactop's a Gonzaga prep guy, but no, I'm a, I'm a public school kid at Spokane. So. So Coach Mack is, is, is Spokane born and raised. I just assumed it was just a great job that he got out of Stanford. He actually was going back home. Yep, exactly. exactly. Oh, that's awesome. The, uh, so, so here's what I want to ask you. So Gonzaga is one of the best programs in college baseball that not enough people know about. There, there's some crazy stat where um, over the last 12 years, if I have this math right, you guys have finished first or second in the WCC like nine of the 12 years which is crazy because you're by far the northernmost program. I mean, it's really a Southern California and a California league. But you guys have had a bunch of big league pitchers. And have you been there for all of those guys? So I, I came back in 2013 as the volunteer. And then, so that was Marco Gonzalez and Tyler Olson. Um, that was their, their last year. So those two guys were both really, really good. Marco's still in the, in the rotation for the Mariners. And then right. I, got to get, I got to take over as pitching coach in 2016. And so we've had four and soon to be five and six guys get a chance to get up to the bigs from that time save. So yeah, we have, we have a special little thing going up here and we have great support from our administration and playing a really competitive league and, and don't take that for granted. No, who are you, Brandon, who are your guys? The recent guys, Eli Morgan, right? I didn't, I just see him in the playoffs too. Yeah. Eli Morgan, Brandon Bailey, Wyatt Mills, and then a couple other guys coming closer. Alec Jacob, who was conference pitcher yeah. here in 21. He's, he's up in AAA already. And then we have a, a few guys I think have a chance out of, out of this last year. That's awesome. Who who who's Eli Morgan pitching for? Guardians. Guardians. Oh, the guards. Or yeah. a super changeup. So. Yeah, and then Wyatt Wyatt Mills is a side, like he's kind of a sub a sidewinder or what, what's yep. it? Lower arm. Yep, uh, low slot guys. With uh, he came up with the Mariners and then got traded to the Royals in July, and so he's he's been up quite a bit, which is is pretty fun. And then Brandon Bailey's a 
a little guy out of Broomfield, Colorado that made his debut for the Reds back in, in the COVID season of 2020. So. Oh, that's awesome. Final question as it, for this part of it, Coach Harmon, how many people does the Gonzaga basketball arena seat? It looks amazing. <laughs> Not enough. Is it like 5,000? I think it's 5,800, which when they made that, when they built it back in 2003, that's a perfect little fit, but who would have forecasted they're going to be in two of the last four national title games. They could, they could easily seat 15,000 and sell it out right now, but um, yeah, 5,800. So it's a, it's a great environment. That's awesome. Very cool. All right, Josh, go for it. All right. I'm Josh Nashit. I'm at St. Mary's College in California. It was West Coast Conference as well. I grew up in San Jose, California, played at San Jose State, and then was with the Indians for about two seasons in rehab the whole time, had five surgeries. So that was a blast. Uh, and here I am. At, when I was released by the Indians, I connected with Greg, Greg Moore, head coach in 2019. That was my first season. I was the director of player development. And then just kind of last three years moved up and I'm, I'm now the recruiting coordinator, pitching coach. So enjoying my time. I love it here. Awesome. So Josh, you were a two-way player in college, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And so tell me about that. Did you kind of come in as a position player and then just ended up pitching or was it like, was it, was it very balanced or was there, was it kind of leaning one way or the other? I think my last three weeks of my senior year of high school were a pretty good indicator of what I was going to do primarily in college, which was pitch. So I hit, I hit until someone took the bat out of my hands, which is when I got drafted, but knew, knew that pitching was, was the route from pretty early on. So, so that experience as a two-way player in college, does that make you more enthusiastic about having two-way players at St. Mary's or does it like, that was enough of an eye opener where you're like, man, you have to almost be <laughs> Superman to do this. It takes a special type of guy. And I, I'll be the first to admit when I was in college as a two-way guy, I had no idea what it took to stay healthy and, and be a lead at both. So I think that's the kind of eye opener when you experience it. I mean, our, two of our guys that got drafted this year were two-way guys and both, both are going to be pitchers at the next level, but both were producers at the college level. And I think that, that was fun for me to help, help them plan that out and We've got two freshmen right now that are two-way guys and both going to be really good on both sides. So I, I value it. I think it's great on the roster management side when you can travel a guy that can do both. It helps with the 27 on the road, but yeah. I just love the competitiveness of having a, a guy that plays a position, get on the mound and chuck it. Yeah. I'll never forget, I think it was like 2009, I had Arkansas in a Super Regional. They had a kid, Brett Eibner, who pitched and played like right field for them. Total stud. And there was a comebacker. It should have been a one-six-three double play, and he almost threw it out of the stadium. Like he airmailed it so bad at second base, and the play-by-play -play guy was kind of frustrated by it. And I was like, "That throw actually is what he practices more." He literally <laughs> threw it to the center fielder in the air. It was yeah, incredible. Oh, so good. Karsten, go ahead. Yeah, Karsten Whitson, pitching coach, down here at Tampa, Florida, the University of South Florida. This will be my fourth year. Pitched at the University of Florida 2011-14 and uh, kicked it around the Red Sox organization a few years before I found myself in uh, Pensacola, Florida, at Pensacola State, 18 and 19. Kind of cut my teeth there at the junior college level with Coach Llewellyn and got hired here in July of 19. Was a volunteer for two years and got, got promoted full-time position in July of 21. All right, so Carson, this is this is now now I'm gonna feel old. If I'm not mistaken, I'm I'm certain of this. You have coached and pitched in a super regional. Is that accurate? Yes. 
there can't be that many guys walking the earth that have done that. I mean, we've only had super regionals since 99. I, maybe there is more of it. So, so, so what was it? And so when you were at Florida, this is when you guys under Sully were really getting on this thing. I think Sully's first year was 2008, 2009, Florida loses the super regional to Southern Miss and then it's on, right? So you're, you're, I think you're part of that first stretch of three straight Omaha's. Does that sound right? Yeah. So your freshman year was 11. Well, what, so tell me, here's my question. What, what, what's the difference between playing in a super regional? Oh, dang it. Gosh, dang, we lost Carson. We'll lost see if he, yeah. We'll see if he comes back. I'll, I'll hold, I got I, I want to ask him about, about super regionals. Kyle, go ahead. You go next and we'll come back to Carson. Clear from, from TCU played at TCU. 2000 played eight years in the minor league. He just got to trim back uh, as a student assistant at TCU and was pitching coach in Carnet Word for two years. And she year when Coach Sarlos came back and took the head coach. Awesome. So, Kyle, was Coach Sarlos, he was not your pitching coach. Is that correct? Correct. I had a coach in 2009 to 2011. So, so who was it? Was it Coach Maisie or who was your pitching coach? I lost you for a second. Maisie was my pitching coach. Oh man, that's awesome. What? So, how would you? How would you? What are the, What are the differences between the styles between Coach Sarlos and and Coach Maisie? Two greats, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, they're, they're pretty some. When I had Maze, is a very very kind of laid back. back the more uh, about game. Kirk's really big on having feel for and this just kind of range and us. How to do things? It, it's actually a really good to see how they kind of mesh and blend together. Awesome. And so, when you were Kyle, when you were pitching at, at TCU, that was the program had gotten really good under Jim Schlossstengel very quickly. But it, what year you were there in 2010 when you guys finally popped that first trip to the College World Series? Correct. Correct. Yep. What year were you? What year were you? There? I, I was my sophomore year. So and was so my Matt Mark nine, there too? Yeah, me, me and Maddie have known each other for 16 years, something like that. So that's awesome. And did you guys play Texas in the Super Regionals in back to back years? We did in 2009, and, and then the next year went went back. So, so both years you had to play them in Austin. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. Talk about having to exercise some demons. Very cool. That's good. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. This, by the way, of the two years, no offense to any of the previous shows, this is by far the most decorated playing careers of any of the coaches we've ever had on these shows. So well done by you guys. All right, Carson, let me let me wrap up your section. Can you hear me? Yeah, sorry about that, Mike. You're good. You're good. Hey, so so I want to know the difference between coaching and a super regional, because in 2021 you were at USF and you guys played that really cool super regional against Texas, ironically. What's the difference between playing in a super regional, pitching in one, and coaching in one? Yeah, I think playing in it, you're, you're more tunnel vision, kind of locked in and definitely way more nerve wracking as a coach. There's, just, there's a lot that's obviously out of your control. So I'd say probably way more gratifying too, as a coach. Um, right. Yeah. So that's probably the, the biggest difference for me. What, what were the super regionals you played in Karsten? What, where, where did you guys go? Or you, I'm sure you were home, but. Yeah, we hosted in 11, um, Super NC State or Mississippi State or who'd you guys play in 11 was Mississippi State. Oh, that was heated. I remember that one. That was chippy. Yeah, it was good. And then 12, who do we host in 12? I'm drawing a blank, Mike. Was it 
Florida State or Miami or one of the one of those schools? Could have been Miami. Yeah. Yeah, it could have been Miami in 12. So did you get to yeah. get a start in any of those or had they wrapped them up by the time they got to you? I did. I started at 11, the second game that, that Mississippi State came back and, and, and fought their way back and, and beat us in the eight. I think Paco, you remember Paco, wherever he is, the lefty we had. Yeah. He was nails for us all year. They they were able to to scratch some runs on him late and forced a game three. But yeah, it was, it was very cool. Great environment. Oh, man. I, I'm, I'm, I'm always a little over fixated on super regionals. I just think the whole atmosphere is so... Yeah, it's just hard to the, the air is hard. It's hard to breathe the air during Super Regional Weekend. That's a lot of no doubt. Tense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No question. Connor, go ahead. Yep, Connor Walsh, pitching coach at Northern Kentucky University. I grew up in a Philly suburb, just like you, Mike. Go Went, played the University of Cincinnati. Got drafted out of there in 2014, and kind of like a lot of these guys kicked around uh, the minors with the White Sox for about six seasons and have been a pitching coach at NKU for about 16, 17 months now. So learned a whole lot. That's for sure. That's awesome. Go Phils. Hey, Connor, let me ask you a question. The, cause you, you grew up in cold weather, you've coached in cold weather. When you're, when you're coaching a pitcher, we're going to get into kind of some, some fundamentals of pitching, pitching development. When you coach a kid that's a cold weather kid, is that different than coaching a, a kid that grew up in Florida or something like that? Or do you try not to be as, I, I don't know if that's oversimplifying it. No, no, I understand what you're saying. Um, and just being a guy from the Northeast, I, I will say this, seeing some guys on the West Coast, seeing some guys in the South and just running into them throughout my playing careers. There, there's definitely more of a polished product and I'm a Northeast guy, man. I'm definitely biased towards that. But when it comes to holding runners, when it comes to the little idiosyncrasies it takes to be successful on the mound, when you're outside playing year round, those are things that you pick up on pretty quick. Um, whereas the Northeast guys, they're, they're playing and, and I'm not just saying Northeast. I mean, everybody that's in the North really, that's trying to compete on a daily basis and, and play this game. It gets difficult having your arm where you want it to be when the season starts and Finding a place to long toss in the winter and throwing bullpens to, to catchers where both of your hands are stinging the whole time. Um, I, I would say one subtle difference would be just the, the ability to play on actual game settings and learn those little things it takes to be successful. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I have this in my mind. I feel like cold weather kids tend to have higher arm slots than than like the SoCal kids or and and I could that could be just my imagination but I, I've spent a lot of I spent a lot of my career coaching against Cal State Fullerton and it's like they never had the awkward over the top guy every kid looked like you could put them at shortstop and you wouldn't know any different so <laughs> gotta love it no that's cool hey boys here's the second question I have for you guys so pitching development's a very broad topic right it's it's a it's a huge topic so what I want to do is if you can, give me three anchors, give me three bullet points, three core beliefs, three pillars, and it doesn't have to be all that specific, but what are three things? Help me start to shrink this a little bit. What are three things I could cling to or focus on as I start to think about developing pitchers? Coach Harmon, why don't you go first? Yeah, what I think of the three things that we really try to strive for within our program and competitiveness is the is the very first thing we talk about, just and that's, that's program-wide and, and trying to get our pitchers to buy into knowing who writes the lineup for them, right? Like this, right. these are the things that you need to do to, to be successful to get into, the, into our rotation. Obviously, development as a whole, trying to increase their stuff. And I really look at the competitive side of things and the, and the training side of things and trying to marry those, ride that line. That, that's 
training is a huge thing in our game these days. You can't get on Twitter without having seen a debate on this is how you increase your spin rate. This is how you mm-hmm. throw a plyo ball harder. And but you still got to like you, you're talking about. You still got to get between the white lines and play the game. And so trying to trying to find the the happy medium between those two. And I think the third one for us, and I think it's one of our biggest roles as as coaches is is just health. Trying to have an open line of communication with our strength coach, with our trainer, and and just what can we do to make guys feel good on a on a daily basis? Because the more they feel good, the more competitive reps we get, the more we actually just get to have reps and you're not it's hard to get better when you're sitting in the training room. And so those are like the three things just on a daily basis that, that I start off with. What can we do to impact these guys today? And I guess health is the underlying one on all those is if that if that isn't right, the rest don't care how competitive you want to be, how much training you want to do. If you, if you don't feel good, that stuff doesn't matter. Brandon, do you feel like on the health side is, I I feel like a lot of players, I'm going to say this pejoratively and I mean it in jest, obviously, but like they're liars, right? You ask them how you feeling today and they all say, I feel wonderful, right? That's, that's what athletes are trained to do is I always just, just pretend, pretend that you feel great. Is it that part getting to really give you an honest assessment of how they feel or is it more health is about habits? Health is about sleeping, eating, those types of things, or, or is it maybe a combination? I'd say a combination. I, I, you're speaking directly to me on that one. I, I told Mac every day I played, yeah, I feel great. Right. Whether I was a, a five on the scale or a 10. Yeah. And so I think relationship-based, knowing knowing my pitchers, knowing truly what good versus great feels for them, because they're all going to lie. They all want to play, which I yeah. I love and I, I respect. You know, at the end of the day, we got to know if you truly are ready to go. And so I think trying to get them in with having those conversations with our strength coach who they see four to five days a week, who... You know, and, and just knowing what each athlete does, how they how they come to the table and, and try to kind of quantify it more so on that relationship based than necessarily some kind of individual metric. Just watching the way they play catch. You tell me you're a 10, but you only went out to 90 feet today is, you know, something something isn't adding up there. Yep. Oh, man, it's like parenting. I love it. Very <laughs> cool. Josh, go ahead. Three pillars, pitching development. Okay. I think my first pillar is the most important. And within it, there's actually a couple couple nuggets within the first pillar, but it's toughness. And Mm -hmm. I I love, I think talking about toughness is great because we all know what it looks like. When you see a guy on the mound, that's tough. We know what it looks like visually. I think in terms of teaching it, how do you actually teach toughness? And and that's, that's the question is how do you get a guy maybe that doesn't have mound presence, isn't confident to portray that on the mound. So I like to break it down five different things that actual things that we can break down and actually talk about at the end of an outing and things that we can control that make up toughness. It's actually something tangible. And so we talk about presence, right? Mound presence is the first piece. How are we holding ourselves on the mound? Talk about separation, pitch to pitch separation, outing to outing separation, being able to just move to the next thing and compete. We talk about confidence, right? Are we, do we believe that we're going to beat the hitter on that day on that pitch? And then accountability. And that's day to day. It's self-accountability of your own routines, your own work, and then accountability of the guys around you as a teammate. And then the last piece is fight, right? When you're on the mound, are, are you going to beat somebody that day? So sometimes we'll go at the end of an outing, we'll break down those five things and we'll ask the group, hey, did did Johnny do X, Y, and Z? Did he do these five things? And say, hey, did, did he have presence on the mound today? Oh yeah, absolutely he did. Did he separate pitch to pitch? I think if you can get to four or five, four of those five consistently, then you can say a guy's got toughness. So it's, it's really just pinpointing the, the five things that I believe really mm-hmm. make toughness. And we, we talk about it all the time, but how do you actually get there? 
I think you hold each other accountable to those five things. And if the group holds each other accountable, you're going to get that. So to me, that's the foundation of, of pitching is we got to have toughness from the guys. And then outside of that, obviously it's pitch development. And we talk about having an out pitch to righties and lefties. If we can do that, you can be successful in college baseball. And then we talk about the health, like, like Brandon talked about, how are the routines, the arm care, the pre and post our stuff. We want to put ourselves in a position to throw hard and, and be healthy. And if we can do that, if we can be tough, we can develop stuff and we can be healthy. I think we're going to be in a good spot. Yep. That's awesome. It, it is striking when we're watching the major league playoffs, two guys that, that jump out at me, like Joe Musgrove and Zach Wheeler, like their maturity on the mounds, where they are mentally is so elite right now. It, it, it feels like to me, like their, their intensity is like a 90 out of 10, but yet there's, they're not emotionally out of control at all. Not for one pitch. Every pitch is its own life. And it's like, we all want that. We all talk about that, but these guys are like fully there. Like it yeah. is, and not to mention the fact that they're throwing a million miles an hour with nuclear breaking stuff, but that it's absolutely. Yeah. Incredible. Well, I think the question is when you see guys like that, is that an inherent trait, right? Do you guys just get that from the way they were raised or from the people there around that toughness that, or, or is that something you can actually train? Is that something you can yeah. go to a guy after an outing and say, Hey man, do you realize that the body language wasn't very good? Do you realize that yeah. after that pitch, you did it, you did this, and this was the result. And so I yeah. think if we can, if we can actually hold guys accountable to those things, then they feel like toughness is not just something you have. It's something you can build. Yeah. Those two guys are great examples, right? Like they're both, I think the answer is both. Like it's, it's obviously DNA and it's trained because we all remember Joe Musgrove with the pirates, just getting his teeth kicked in every five days. It was terrible. For, yeah. at, for that level, right? And then yeah. Zach Wheeler, if he was who he is today, seven years ago, he'd be making a hundred million a year, right? Like he's <laughs> he's the the Phillies. What what the Phillies are getting compared to what they're paying for? Like the coupon of all coupons. Carson, go ahead. You you do your three pillars. Yeah. So I think the first one is ownership. Having our guys take take ownership of of their career. We can we can give them the tools to be successful. And kind of show them the roadmap of, of guys that have had success. But if they're not willing to kind of put in that extra work, I don't think they're going to fully maximize their potential. The NCAA kind of limits the amount of time we can spend with these guys. So really preaching that work ethic and that ownership of, of really going beyond kind of what is asked on a daily basis. Winning pitching, it kind of sounds the winning pitching, all, all guys should, should do that to win. But with, with today's player, I feel like so many guys are at least guys that we deal with like start with the draft and all, every player has an agent. It's almost like they're skip stuffers. They, they get to college, but then as soon as they get here, they're worried about the draft and we have a job to do. We have to win games while we're here. Obviously development is a big part of that guys develop. We win what we can do daily. They're going to help, help us win as a whole, as a staff, I try to get buy-in from guys do that. And then dealing with failure is probably the biggest one, just. Just uh, having guys fail in the fall and most of the guys, I'm sure I'm not speak for everyone, but if we're doing it right in the recruiting process, we're probably getting guys that have success in high school and on the travel ball circuit. So what happens in the fall when, when things don't go right those first few weeks? And, and I think that's a huge, a huge part of development is how, how do you deal with failure? How do you bounce back? And for me, just, just off the top of the head, those three things, right? Not, not talking about mechanics or grip or anything, just kind of attacking some stuff outside of that, I think. I think can really jumpstart guys early in their process in college. Hey, so, so Carson, when you were at Florida, 
it, it just felt like you, your, your teams were so talented, but it felt like you guys did a really good job of coaching each other. And I, I sense some of those things in what you're saying. And it, it just felt like when you guys were at Florida, there was, there was no confusion as to what one like I, I never heard a Florida pitcher back then talking about spin rates it really didn't exist the way it does now but it just seemed like you guys were so focused on winning is that something that you like is does that have to come from the coaches or when it's at its best you guys were at Florida you, you guys are really that's that's the staff is coaching the pitching staff yeah you know I think I think when with any pro successful program there's an expectation year in and year out obviously uh, when your head coach is a pitching guy right he's going to kind of have his thumb on it a little bit tighter and for us that was just kind of the expectation I remember my freshman fall at Florida after one of my first bullpens going to run just run poles after a bullpen and an upperclassman was stopping me going hey that's not how we how we run poles here and I was like takes you off guard but that was just the culture and I think in, yeah. in, in every successful program across the country, if you have a culture like that, then, you know, you're probably going to have, have success along the way. Yeah. Gosh, that's awesome. Oh, really cool. Hey, Kyle Winkle, three um, pillars. Go for it. Yeah, I think uh, the first one and for us with Coach Sarlos coming from 410 and, and playing those years, you got to have good mental game. Right. You got to be, everybody's kind of said it in a different way. You got to be mentally tough because we're going to make our biggest pitches in the biggest moments when the most stuff is going on. So I think that's a, that's a big part of what we preach to our guys, whether we're doing shadow bullpens every day or talking mental game with them about why we want to do certain things or how we need to react. My second one is, is guys have to know who they are. It, it's really hard to coach kids who don't understand what they do well and what they, what they can use to get guys out. I think at times, even with everybody, I mean, we walk in with our, our own players and we have to explain who they are at times to them because mm -hmm. they don't know. They've had success at a, at a lower level and now they're at a higher level. And how are they going to translate their success at the lower level to the next level, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then I think finally just for, for us, and you just got to be relentless, right? And have super high standards for your performance and how you, and how you do things, how you go about your daily catch, how you go about your bullpen work, how you go about your PFPs, because we all know we've lost, everyone on this call has lost games because we can throw the ball to first base on a bunt, right? So all that stuff, it has to be kind of in your DNA, in my opinion, to, to really be successful. Yeah. Hey, Kyle, when you said identity, man, that speaks to me. I, I think about it as programs, too. Like, I, if I was to brag on Coach Harmon, I think Gonzaga, I think of programs like UConn, where, man, their program identity is so locked in. Like, they're so good at knowing who they are, and that's why the success is so sustained. Is, is a big part of that with pitchers that, hey, they all want to throw five pitches, but maybe that's not? Is, is that part of it, is, is shrinking the repertoire before you expand it? I, I think, I think so. I think there's always, there's always addition by subtraction at times, right? Like mm -hmm. most guys who have a slider and a curveball, it, it usually ends up being the same pitch at some point, unless they right. can really do both. So I, I think that, you know, pitchers in general were tinkers, right? You like to tinker. I know every time I got hit around the next week, I thought I had the answers because in the bullpen, I like learned a two seam or something, right? So right. we like to tinker. And I think sometimes, I think our biggest job as pitching coaches is just being kind of ego managers too, right? Yeah. Like figuring out who who needs to have their their ego stroked a little bit and who like needs to be 
brought back down to earth a little. So yes, and I just think the biggest thing is those guys have to know what they're really, really good at and try and develop that to allow them to get out to the high level. Yeah, that's awesome. Very good. Connor, go ahead. Three pillars. Yeah, so these are all awesome answers, by the way. It's, no it's awesome being here and learning from people, man. I, I was extremely excited to be on this. The first thing I got is the collaboration with my guys. I always tell them I don't want them want them to feel like they, they're working for a business. I want them to feel like they own a piece of this business. If you can do that, man, they're going to be a lot more engaged in and not only their development, but getting on the field as well. So I like my guys kind of having that perspective in regards to their own development because they're going to be their own best pitching coach at the end of the day. I am merely just another voice, an individual that has some experience that can provide suggestions, but I can't make them do anything unless they trust me. So collaborating with them hopefully creates that foundation of trust with them. The other thing, which I believe it was Kyle who said it, knowing your strengths and weaknesses was huge for me specifically as a player. And I think it's huge for any player coming up. Measuring, whether it be on the rap soda or the track man, like that stuff is all good, but there is that aspect of the mental game. And for, for the individuals that need to be brought back down to earth and the individuals that maybe need some love and whatever the case is, creating that environment for them to grow is another big one is knowing who's who and, and creating the environment for them to kind of have the, the autonomy to learn who they are and, and how they succeed and kind of go from there. And the last one I have, it's, it's the final boss, man. It's maximizing deception to a hitter. Regardless of what your sabermetrics say, at some point, there's going to be a monster about 60 feet, six inches away from you, and you have to be able to get him out. I don't, our sabermetrics are extremely important. Measuring is extremely important. Uh, but the final boss is going to be the confrontation with the hitter. And I don't think that concept is going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah. So it's when you say that, Connor, I, I, I told you guys I saw Arizona play yesterday and just an excellent program. Omaha, twice in the last six years. Dave Lawn, their pitching coach, is one of the OGs of college baseball. And they've got a special arm in TJ Nichols, who you catch him on the right day. It's up to 98 with a slider that'll touch 87. TJ Nichols' career array at Arizona so far is probably four and a half, five-ish. And great kid, great athlete, good competitor. But it, just trying to figure out a way for the hitters to be a little bit more uncomfortable because for whatever reason, the, the, those extreme numbers haven't made the hitters as comfortable as TJ wants them to be. And you know, this is his draft year. It's a big year for him. So, yeah, that third pillar, that's a that is a, that, man, that's huge. So, hey, boys, let's let's keep going with this one. So on the topic of pitcher development, give me a victory story. I want you to give me a player that you think of that, man, this this is one I think about where this kid was at X and through the course of his development, he got to Y. And, and I'd like to know, uh, not the letter Y, but the question Y, why did it happen? Why did it, why did the kid get there? So Coach Harmon, kick us off. Looking for a victory story in pitcher development and why it happened. Yeah, fun one for me. I'll go with a kid named Daniel Bees, who 2018 regional team for us. He ended up being our Friday night starter that year, was our ace, ended up being a seventh rounder to the Yankees, but came into Gonzaga. Um, as a recruited walk-on, missed his whole senior year of high school with, with TJ, 6'8", 240, but kind of the 6'8", 240 where you're not, you're not 6'8", 240, and you're not, yeah. not very coordinated, not very strong. And he, he, he was with us for four years and he had a redshirt year mixed in there his first year coming off of TJ and first year coming back, I, I think his, one of his very first outings was down at TCU in 2016 and would show some flashes, but was just good enough to just good enough to get you beat at that point because you're right. you, know, you knew you thought you needed to put him in, but wasn't ready. 
but he just stayed with it. Just listening to these guys talk, just started to get a really good identity of who he, who he was, what he needed to do to get good. And then just the routine that we, we stress in our program. And he just started buying in and figuring out what do I need to do to get good? And all this, that transformation just on the baseball field, um, transformation in the weight room, how he, how he recovered after an outing. And he turned himself into a guy that just was going to be a student to a frontline division one pitcher and threw a hundred, close to hundred names for us in, in 2018. And just, I, I think just the awareness of, of where he was at was the biggest thing. And then he bought into him and he was relentless. And I love, I love what Connor just said about Haitian with the hitter. Um, he'd get out there and when, when it was time to go fight, he was ready to go fight and off the field, it was about what can I do to get better into the next week, regardless of what my outcome was. And a really fun one for me to, to be a part of that, that journey with him. Oh, that's awesome. Hey, by the way, boys, this could be, this example could be someone that was a teammate, someone you coached, someone you witnessed. It could be, yeah, feel you got a carte blanche on this one. So that's really, I remember Daniel B's. That's a good one. Josh, go ahead. This one's too easy. Kai Bush was a left-handed pitcher for us and he was a 2021 draft, but he was the, probably the most, the craziest thing I've ever seen in a eight month period of a guy that worked harder than anybody knew exactly what he wanted to do and just maybe didn't know how to get there. And man, that he went from being a guy that was, he started in the PAC 12 as a freshman, had like an 11 ERA, went to a junior college, went undrafted out of the junior college, came to St. Mary's. He was a two pitch guy, big left-handed pitcher, but all from, from day one, hardest worker there was knew exactly what he wanted to do, believed that he could be a top three round guy at some point but just didn't really have an out pitch, commanded the fastball okay, but not great, didn't throw enough strikes, 6'6", six, six lefty. He had the physical tools, but the way that guy transformed himself, the way Kai turned himself into a second-round pick in a six-month period was unbelievable, and it was, it was just it was routines. It was it, on his start day at 2 p.m. start, you knew that at one twelve he was you were going to see him doing his thing on the line, right? You're going to see him every single day, the same thing, taking care of his body, stretching, mobility, just the relentlessness and the pen because he knew he needed the slider and he came in with a sloppy slider and a sloppy curveball and knew he needed something tighter. And it was three months on the rap soto and three months of, of just him developing that pitch to the point where he had confidence to throw it at any time. And anyways, I, I, it's so hard now thinking back, but I remember at the moment watching him in those pens thinking, this guy's going to, he's going to do what he wants to do. And you talk to scouts that saw him in high school, scouts that saw him in college and said, oh, he's not very confident. Oh, he's, he's not very tough. He's kind of soft. And anyone that knew him knew that wasn't the case. Maybe, a, maybe that showed up in his play because he didn't have what he needed to beat hitters, but he did what he needed to do on the work side and, and routine side. And, and like I said, he went from being a guy that went undrafted to a guy that was a probably probably should have been a first rounder, but that type of talent, he's in the futures game this year and, and pitching in double a doing great. So just one of those success stories where it's not just about the performance. It came because of the person and the person developed because he just knew what he wanted. Hey, let me ask you a follow-up question on that, Josh, on the slider part. Was it, so it sounded like he had two breaking balls. Then you guys were able to settle on one. Like what ended up being the difference maker? Was it something like it was a grip that he was trying? It was a feel like what kind of got him over the hump with the slider? I think it was an intent thing. He, uh -huh. like I said, he came in with someone mentioned 
having a slider and a breaking ball probably ends up being one pitch. And that was his case. He, he threw a sloppy breaking, a sloppy slider that was like 74 miles an hour and a curveball that was a little slower than that. That wasn't much different. And for a guy that was 88 to 92 at the time, the, the breaking ball needed to be firmer. And so we just talked about him ripping it and throwing it hard with intent. And then we did some things with the delivery. And as the velo ticked up at the end of the year, it was 92, 96. And mm. the slider was 82, 86. And it was just him understanding that he needs to throw the hell out of it to get what That's he wants. Awesome. And it was a pretty cool, pretty cool story. That is really cool. Hey, Kyle, go ahead. Give us a victory story for, for pitching development. Yeah, I think mine's Halen Green. I was with ah. Halen in, in 19 uh, when I was here as a student assistant. And Halen was our the sloppy inning guy that got the, got the leftovers at the end of the game. And Halen always threw strikes. He was super lucky. He's actually recruited as a two-way player when he came to TCU and then decided not to hit, but was always really athletic. And shoot, me, me and Los were sitting in the in the outfield at minute during the Minute Maid Classic, and we just kind of looked at him and said, hey, uh, you're throwing strikes over the top. It's hitting you, and we're having to chase balls down out of the parking lot when you pitch. <laughs> and uh, what do you think about dropping down and, and having just a, a different look? He actually tried it that night. He threw a bullpen before the game, got him into the game for an inning, tried it that night, had a little success. Um was throwing strikes, but the breaking ball was was not real good and it was loopy. And man, he he just he just grinded it out. And I remember me and him sitting in the outfield trying to figure out how can we get this breaking ball to have any type of shape to get anybody out and getting them on rapsodos and and all of that stuff. But man, he he just really for a, for a guy that had probably not great stuff on on paper, it's eighty seven, eighty eight with a sweeper slider. Like it's not the prettiest scene in the world. But ultimate competitor knew what he wanted to do, knew who he was, and ends up being a two time All American. Gets a chance to go play pro ball. Just a just a super. That's I think if you were to ask uh, me or Kirk, Kirk's probably got some more because he's been super luck lucky with some of the guys he's had over the years. But that one that one's pretty special for both of us. That's awesome, and that's like the perfect prototype, right? Like super athletic kid. Like he was he 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 had he was a live wire that kid, yeah, but not he, very tall, right? Five ten, five eleven, something like that. Yeah, maybe you're probably helping him out. So. Yeah, but yeah, just man, he's super 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 competitor. Compete over stuff, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's awesome. Karsten, go ahead. Yeah, I'd say for me in my short career as a pitching coach, it definitely have to be one of our relievers on that 21 team, the super regional team, Logan Lyle, a left-hander we had career prior to that year, career six ERA guy. Sorry, Logan. And Back you know, facts. A, a guy that had had five pitches and they were all average, like yeah. through strikes, but was always kind of one of those guys that was on the outside looking in in terms of, of, of your depth chart. And uh, he had a terrible preseason. At 21 and I just went to him I said hey let's I said if you're willing to do this let's just scrap two of your pitches and let's see if we can be really good with three and for him it was fastball slider change up and he he went with that early in the season and he ended up leading our team in appearances in 21 and and had a sub sub two ERA he he did it I, I think his first appearance for us that year came and like our 11th game because we were still trying yeah. the depth chart those guys really probably don't get their their first chance until you're eight, 10 games in after seeing in front of them, if, if those guys can do it, but he got his opportunity. He, he never looked back. That was, that was absolutely nails. Every time he took the ball, I, 
I firmly believe if, if we don't have Logan Lyle on our staff in 21, then we don't do what we do collectively. So that's yeah. probably my, my victory story. And it's, he, he went undrafted. He went and pitched a year of any bowl and he got picked up with the White Sox. So he's, he's, he's living his dream and I'm proud of him. Was there, did he have multiple fastballs, Carson, and you had to pick one or what? I'm always curious about that. It seems like everybody's got a four-seamer or two-seamer and they're not always both great pitches. Yeah, for him, if I remember, it was fastball, cutter, slider, curveball, changeup. He had a few things going against him. All right, he was left-handed, all right? So he was a tinkerer and he was just very cerebral and wanted to have all these different pitches for all these different situations. And like I said, it just like Kyle said, where we kind of sub subtracted two, I think we added the fact that his bullpens and in game, it's three that he was able to work with every single day. And that's been time on a fourth or fifth pitch that we weren't going to call. So the slider got, got really, really good. And, and that was kind of his bread and butter that year. Yeah. Oh, really cool. Go ahead, Connor. Yeah, so being a pitching coach for a year and some change now, hopefully I have a really cool story to tell here in a couple of years. But I was, uh, it was a privilege being around a buddy of mine, Aaron Bummer, in the Chicago White Sox organization. He got drafted the same year, came pretty close. I still talk to him to this day. He's an awesome guy. And here's an individual who gets drafted. The, the world's at his fingertips, feels really good, has to battle through two separate arm injuries that knock him out for two years. Um, and comes back even stronger two years later, makes it to the big league shortly after and, and signs a, a big league contract shortly after that. So I think the biggest thing that, that I was able to pick up from him and, and something that I try to relay to my guys as much as possible is just the, the perspective of failure and the, the perception of failure, especially in a game of failure. Now, we're not talking about Aaron Bummer having a rough first year or pitching and have a rough second year. This is a guy that had the ball taken. However, you run into him and, and you talk to him as it was going on, and he was just so even-keeled about the whole situation. Mind you, he, he might have been battling behind closed doors, but he was just a bright light when you're around him. So I knew early on that was a guy that I wanted to surround myself with. And watching him grow into the duty is today, pitching on TV and, and doing his thing, um, it really speaks to these guys in the, in the big leagues. They're there for a reason. And one of the big reasons that I've noticed and that I'm going to continue to relay to my guys is handling failure the correct way because you're going to get a whole lot of it in this game mm, yeah that that is yeah like what carson said the, the guys that are tinkerers i always worry about those guys because the game is can really trick you that you're you're failing when you're not failing and, and then next thing you know you start tinkering things and you're not even yourself anymore and we've all been down that dark road it is it is the breadcrumbs that you leave behind uh, disappear it can be a long long road back so all right boys let's do this. this this may be our final question we'll see how we do on time so obviously technology is really prominent in the game and especially on the pitching side I would say it's almost it's it's probably widely considered ahead on the pitching side so coach Harmon I'll start with you give me give me a positive version or give me something positive about the technology and pitching development and then give me a trap What's something that if I'm starting down the road as a pitching coach, I got to be weary of, but give me, give me a good thing about the technology and pitching development. And then, and then what, what is a trap that I need to be aware of? Yeah. I, I think the, the biggest positives are you, you can get instant feedback, right? The, I think I've heard some guys say it, the naked eye could maybe get to you, get to where you want your slider to get. It might take you two or three weeks where maybe the Rapsodo or Trackman gives you that feedback within seven to 10 days and you start to you can streamline that 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 line of communication to your players. For us, I think it's a piece of the puzzle. You want to try to add it in and 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 
add it to what we bring as individuals in our communication process. I think the biggest trap is what, what you just, to segue off of what you just said, it can become a trap to, to tinker where every single pitch, you know, they're looking back, well, what was my spin efficiency on that? What was that? Why don't, why don't we just let the ball tell you what it was right there? Are you throwing it? Does the ball have good flight? Are you able to stay on the same line? When we get into scrimmages, they'll tell you how your ball's tunneling pretty good. What kind of swings, what kind of flinches are we getting? And so trying to have that, that communication, I, I don't want to just be blind to it and say, hey, that, that don't look at it, but you need to also, we're, we're playing the game. We're training for, I think like Carson said, we're trying to get outs here. We're trying to, we're doing all this stuff for when the lights are on here on February 17th, and we're going to try to go get somebody out. And so I think that's the biggest trap is just you, you get caught into it, obsessive over tinkering and wanting to do this and do that, where we need to keep the goal in front of us of this is part of the the, the puzzle and how we're going to try to try to make you the best we can be and, and help you be a, a competitor. So. Love it. Josh, go ahead. <laughs> I think this is actually probably a great question to outline the modern pitching coach and the... <laughs> This is what the modern pitching coach goes. There's the struggle of growth and competitiveness and how to balance the two, because we can, we can sit all day long and look at the breaking ball and the shape of it. How does it translate in game? And that's the most important thing, the most important thing. And the positive is, yeah, instant feedback, like Brandon said, hundred percent, that's, that is probably the biggest positive and just being able to show a guy, Hey, this is what you do. And this is what happens when you do it. The trap is like I mentioned, the. If you're losing on the competitive side because you're worried about what the stuff looks like, man, the, the stuff in game, it, it doesn't matter. It's it's how, how well you're competing and how you're using it and how are we sequencing this stuff? How are we attacking hitters based on what they're doing and what we do well? So I, I just think this this question is great because this is what we deal with now as pitching coaches. And it's an it's a awesome thing. It's a great thing to have to deal with because you have a really good tool. We have a bunch of different tools now at our disposal to help these guys. But we got to also balance, are we helping them? Or are we hurting them? Are they helping themselves? Are they hurting themselves at the right time, at the right place? That, that's yeah. the balance. Yeah, right time, right place. That's the phrase that really resonates with me. There's a, there's a time for tinkering. There's a time for competing. And it's very easy to get those two lines blurred up. That's, yeah, it's good. Great point. Kyle, go ahead. I, I think I'll kind of piggyback on the same thing everybody else has said. It's the, the, the one trap that we have is how no matter what your stuff looks like on the machine it's it's got to get guys out right right it, it has to and i think what we fall into that that just you know is that we want everything to be perfect and meet certain metrics like the, the best thing that you have going technology is that quantifiable data of all like what we used to know is a heavy fastball right yeah. or a fastball that gets on or man he's got that second you're like, but now we can all quantify what that is. Yep. No, I love that. Carson, go ahead. Yeah. No, some, some, some great points there. Try to, try to give you something a little different. I think, I think for me, a positive is buy-in with technology. I think you can use that to leverage buy-in with guys. Maybe it's something that our, that our eyes see. We, we feel like maybe there's a picture that we really want to, Hey man, you need to sink the ball. You just, our eyes are telling us that you're not missing many barrels. You're getting hit hard. Let's maybe drop the slot a touch and really try to sink it. And and players might want to fight that early. I probably would have naturally. Hey man, I've, I've been good up until this point. But I think when they can see something visually that that kind of reaffirms what you're telling them, I think it gives them a little bit of confidence that the change that they're making is positive, right? Obviously, it still has to translate 
when they go out there, it's definitely, it gets you on the right track to making, making that change. And then negative would probably be, I think, I think guys use it as a crutch probably a lot. And, and it's when they go away from us in the summer in high school, they've got all their, their pitching gurus they go to that, that train spin rate and below and all this stuff. And then when they get to us, maybe in a, in a bullpen setting with, when they're not commanding the ball, they're still asking about, Hey, what was the spin rate on that? It's like, dude, you missed your spot by six feet. So I think it can cloud, cloud the mind at times and they can use that. That's why I didn't throw the ball today. So you have to kind of filter that out and, and deal with it at times, but definitely there's, there's a place for it. And, and like these guys said, but it's, it's all, it's sexy in a bullpen, some of those numbers, but it, you, it, it all goes out the window when you're, when you have that hitter. The header pitcher confrontation. Yep. Oh, that's great. Connor, go ahead. Yeah, I think a positive, kind of going off what we talked about earlier, is the strengths. It also allows you to create like clear goals with pitch development. Being a pitcher not too long ago, you guys were talking about tinkering. Every time I picked up the ball, it was the same thing as you guys were talking about. I thought I had this brand new pitch that was going to change my life. And I I don't think there was enough for me specifically. I didn't put enough clear, concise goals to kind of have those blinders on and keep it. I I think that having a a guy like a goal for him to create more horizontal break on his fastball as he's playing catch, it, it keeps him busy, which I know sounds bad, but. In the grand scheme of things, having a guy building confidence in catch play on a daily basis, as we all know, confidence is the difference between a good and bad season in baseball. And if we can use sabermetric data and all of this new school stuff and, and that approach to create confidence in individuals, then I think you might have something there. But in regards to the traps, it can go both ways. You can start trying to make your stuff too perfect. I think a, a common issue that, that I've seen recently is individuals that are, are on the Rapsodo, for instance, trying to make their third pitch their best pitch. And a lot of times the third pitch is the changeup. And they're trying to create so much horizontal break on the changeup. And the reality of the situation is the task behind the changeup should be to get the hitter's weight to shift onto his front foot and draw weak contact. We don't need a swing and miss. There's an arc behind, pitching behind in the count. And if you have the nastiest changeup in the world in a bullpen setting, sabermetrically, but you get out there and in a 2-0 count, you throw one high and arm side that the hitter at no point in the trajectory of the pitch is in swing mode. Now you're 3-0 and we got to fight back that way. So definite pros and cons to it. If you're able to convey a simplified message with a lot of, a lot of crazy data, I think it can be really effective. But I am partial to simple is always going to win in this game. Relentlessness is always going to win in this game. So I see both sides, but I, I'm always going to err on the side of simplicity in regards to development. Yeah, gosh, that's so good. I, it, when, when you guys were talking, it reminded me of, I think it was Tiger Woods said this. He criticized a golfer. He said, we're playing golf and this guy's playing golf swing. Right. Like it's we're, we're keeping score and I don't know what they're doing over there, but it, it, there, there's so much of it. So anyway. Gosh, this was a really, really great conversation. Obviously, the topic is too big for one conversation, but and and as it always does, the hour flew by. We're coming up on 59 minutes, and I want to say thank you. You guys were great. This was super compelling. Pitching's not my area of expertise, but I've I've loved this conversation, and and I hope it continues. I hope to see you guys at the. Uh, I told the the previous two groups we got to get together at the bar or somewhere at the convention and continue these conversations. So good. So. Well done. Really, really good stuff, you guys. Hey, I want to, and, and as we wrap up, let me say thanks again to our friends at Netting Pros. This is not possible without their support. Really appreciate those guys. 
want to encourage everyone to support them. And we will be back here next Sunday night as we continue these subject-driven conversations, these Sunday night conversations. So thanks to these guys. Thank you to the listeners. Everybody have a great week, and we will see you next Sunday. Take care, everybody.